You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. This is another special exam episode. It also runs for approximately one hour and is aimed at candidates who have either just sat or who are about to sit the KFP or Key Feature Problem Examination. If you're an impending or recent candidate, then please listen on. If not, then I'd suggest that your time may be better invested elsewhere. I'm Sean Stevens, Chair of the WA Faculty of the RACGP, Podcaster with The Good GP and Supervisor of 16 Years Experience. In the second of our exam podcasts, I'm privileged to be joined by Dr Genevieve Yates, RACGP Principal Medical Educator and RACGP Queensland State Censor. Welcome Genevieve. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. And together with Dr. Gary Butler, who is National Assessment Advisor for the KFP, or Key Feature Problem Examination. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Sean. So, first of all, to you, Genevieve, um, what's the purpose of the KFP and how does it differ from the AKT? Like the AKT, the KFP is designed to test the knowledge and skills and to apply that knowledge at the level of an unsupervised general practitioner who can work anywhere in Australia. All the questions are clinically based and slightly different from the AKT, it's a mixture of write-in questions in note form and selection lists. So, for example, you might be asked to choose five investigations from a list of, say, 15 or 20 answers. While, it, it's, uh, while the AKT does test clinical reasoning and higher order thinking, the KFP focuses specifically on this. So it looks at the how, how we make the decisions that we do in general practice. So the clinical reasoning and the clinical decision-making process. The KFP has 26 cases uh, and they're a mixture of between two and four questions per case. Now, one of the really important things to uh, to note, particularly when you're trying to look at your time management, is to know that each case is equally weighted. So each case contributes one twenty-sixth, or that is about 3.85% of your total score. So when you're looking at trying to pace yourself, you try and work on a case-by-case basis. The exam takes 3.5 hours uh, and it's designed to be answered in about three hours. Gary, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I think an important way of looking at the KFP is that whilst the ACE-KT, as you said, starts to enter into that whole area of clinical reasoning, um, the KFP is completely focused on clinical reasoning. So it's taking the knowledge that you have within the AKT and then seeing whether you can join the dots of that knowledge around diagnosis, investigations and management and join those dots up in the context of a specific case. And that's the really important thing about the KFP. The KFP cases are focused on a particular patient presenting with a specific problem. And so you must always address the the context of the case um, rather than this being a short notes paper where, where you may in the past have presented with a question where you have to list all the causes of hematuria or all the causes of chest pain. In the KFP, you've got to answer those questions in the context of the case you've been provided. Okay, thanks. So it's really focusing on the context and applying applying the how um, and, and joining all of those dots together. Hmm. So 
You mentioned that it's a 3.5-hour exam designed to be done in three hours. The AKT is a four-hour exam designed to be done in 3.5 hours. We had a submitted question asking why the KFP is 3.5 hours rather than four, and could it be extended to four hours, noting that it's hard to finish in 3.5 hours. Gary, did you have any thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, historically, the KFP um, and AKT have been at the hours that they currently are because it's considered the amount of reading um, that's required within each paper um, is appropriate to the length of the paper. We have many quality assurance processes when we're developing the exam. And one of those is to actually look at the total word count, to look at the total number of questions and the total number of responses that we require across the whole paper. And we try to make sure that that's consistent from one exam cycle to the next. And when we actually also look, once the paper has been set, at the non-completion rate of the paper. So for example, how many candidates have not completed all the questions in the exam? We then go back from the last question of the final case, case 26, and we work backwards looking at each question to see what the non-completion rate of that question is. And that's fairly consistent across every exam cycle, and it's actually very, very minimal. So when we look at the actual time, we feel that the time is is an appropriate time. If I said to candidates the KFP was going to be four hours, um, most people are fearful of just the three and a half hours, and we'd worry that you know um, they would still be pacing themselves to four hours. And I think we would still see the compl- the non-completion rate at a similar level, and it is very minimal. Um, uh, the vast, vast majority of candidates actually finish the paper. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so we've also had a question, you know, th- focusing now on timing. Um, the question asked, why does the progress bar or indicator bar during the examination not reflect on the number of expected answers to be given? So this is a um, an interesting question. For those that haven't seen the way that the platform works, uh, the you are given and the number of cases that you have completed um, and how many questions you have to go, but they don't actually reflect how many answers that are for each question, so how long each question is. Now, as I said earlier, when you're looking at the timing of the of the KFP, you've got to remember that each case is worth the same amount of marks. So, my suggestion is that you focus on having approximately the same amount of time allocated per case. Now, if you work this out, the exam is designed to be done in three hours with 26 cases. That means you have about seven minutes per case on the first run through if you want to make sure that you have enough time at the end, so at least half an hour at the end, to go back and fill in any gaps. The problem happens with timing is that if people come across a case which they struggle with or they're not sure what it's meant, they can spend a lot of time on that one case, get stuck on that and then rush through cases which are perhaps much easier for them and they misread questions or they're in that 
that psychological stress state where they're not thinking clearly and they run themselves into trouble. So I really strongly recommend that when people are sitting in the KFP, they do a bit of a reverse serial sevens exercise. And what I mean by that is I suggest that they jot down on the piece of scrap paper that they are provided with the time they start a case and then seven minutes later. And then essentially, once they've reached that time on their timer, just to move on to the next case and then come back to that case if they haven't completed it. Now, candidates that have taken that approach, uh, that you need to be very strict with yourself and not say, I just another five minutes on this because if you aren't strict with yourself, you can still run out of time. If, of course, you finish the case within that seven minutes, then you don't sit down twiddling your thumbs, you go on to the next case. But if you do that, then you'll make you'll know that you'll have at least half an hour at the end, which helps your internal stress levels as well. So there are many other ways of handling um, timing, and I'll be interested to hear the way Gary um, finds the pacing, how he finds to pace it. Uh, but personally, I find that that technique works particularly well for those that have a lot of timing stress. I suppose the other factor, other point I'll make is that uh, you may need to practice your typing skills. So if you are a slow typist, that can uh, decrease the amount of time that you have. Uh, we don't expect long answers. In fact, we actively do not want you to give us essays. Very much note form. Don't give us words that don't count. Uh, but even within that, there is a certain number of words you do need to type. So being a faster typer might also help with your type, with your speed and your also help with your general practice because being a fast typist will definitely improve your time management on a day-to-day -day basis in general practice. What do you think about timing, Gary? Thanks, Genevieve. I think they were really good pointers on how to pace yourself. And I think in, in response to Sean's initial question as well around the progress bar, it's important to remember that each case has a different number of questions and each question will have a different number of responses. And so it would be very difficult to guide where you are actually in the paper. So a very easy way is to make sure that you are you have completed case 13 by an hour and a half into the paper. So you are halfway through the three hour mark, which will then leave you that half an hour. And you can then divide the paper um, as well further into quarters because the pacing is important. As Genevieve says, if you're not strict with yourself and you give yourself an extra minute here, an extra minute there, then you will find that you have run out of time without any space or um, and buffer at the end to revise. And it's as when you talk to candidates who have not been successful, um, they, they often say that they just felt this increasing pressure as they went through the exam. So it's important to keep that, keep the eye on the time, either by the seven minutes or by dividing the exam into to four sections and making sure you've completed that at the appropriate way marker. Mm, okay, all very good tips. So basically stick to time, divide it into halves, quarters and practice your seven times table um, <laughs> and practice your typing <laughs> as, as if yes. the candidates didn't have enough to do already. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thanks, guys. All very good tips. Um, so what knowledge is being tested and more importantly for our candidates' benefit, what topics might come up? That's a really 
good question and one we get asked all the time. And this is where I say it's time we take a trip to the beach. Um, and by that, I mean the beach data, which is uh, an insight into the the cases, the demographics of patients presenting to general practice. And whilst I appreciate beach ceased in 2016, over its 10 years, there was not a significant change to the presentations within general practice. And it really is the most contemporary outline um, of general practice uh, in terms of what presents um, and how we how we work and how we manage the, the cases we manage. And there's one particular a chapter within the Beach Report, which is Chapter 7. And Chapter 7 talks about the most frequently managed new problems, the most frequently managed chronic problems. And it's an interesting area to look because if we're going to be making sure that our candidates are fit for unsupervised practice anywhere in Australia, then we need to make sure that they are competent in managing those common problems that present to general practitioners here in Australia. And so it would be a really good place to start to look at the beach data from chapter seven. You can find that by literally sticking beach data, uh, general practice into your search engine, and it will come up with the site and direct you to the Sydney University site. And you can download the PDF from there free of charge. And it's very interesting to look at that list and when you see that list, it will give you all the topics that you really need to know thoroughly from how they present, what you would do in terms of history, investigations, examinations. It will direct you to the guidelines you need to have under your belt when you're entering the exam. But it's also important to remember that not all of the subjects will be in the, all the cases in the KFP will be based on beach data because there are those cases that are important that may not happen frequently, but they are springboards into exploring other areas of general practice. Um, and we also need to remind candidates that we're assessing all the domains of general practice. So the beach data is not going to reflect the medical legal, um, the practice processes. Uh, so it's it's important that beach can be your springboard uh, into what you need to be looking at. Using that in uh, conjunction with the RACGP's curriculum is important. And that's that's really the, 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 the nub of what you need to use. And we'll come back to how we can use beach as part of our revision and support later on. Mm. Thanks, Gary. I uh, I must say that I want to emphasise everything that you said uh, is really important. Uh, sometimes there are some criticisms that we talk about beach a lot, and yet there are cases of rare conditions or management not routinely done by majority of GPs, and they go, "You said it was about beach, and there's all this rare stuff." Um, so you did mention, and I want to emphasise your point about the fact that there are important conditions uh, and other things that may not be involved, might not be explicitly stated in beach that are important. And the reason we put those in um, is that the RACGP exams, they're assessing the competence of candidates to be able to work anywhere in Australia unsupervised. All of our cases are directly relevant to Australian general practice. Uh, there will be some difficult cases on each exam. And I want to 
again, just remind people that's what difficult for one doctor may be not difficult for another. We all have our areas of expertise and comfort. There are, in most exams, some rare but important conditions which are tested. But a very important thing to note is that the cases are written in a way so that even if you don't have the deep knowledge of a less common topic, you can still gain marks for a case using your basic common sense and clinical reasoning skills. So I want to take an example from the most recent paper, the 2019.1 exam. So in that paper, there was a case about the medical termination of pregnancy. Now, the first question in this case did require you to have specific knowledge about medical termination of pregnancy. Now, I want to emphasize not you didn't have to know about how you would do it. Um, it was more about uh, knowing about contraindications, etc. cetera. Uh, but the remaining two questions in the case did not require any specific knowledge about medical termination of pregnancy. They were, they were related to diagnosing and investigating endometritis, um, and they were done very well by candidates. So using that example, I just want to say that the message is don't write off a case if the topic is unfamiliar. Don't read the case and think, oh my goodness, I go nothing about this. Uh, read the stem, read the question carefully, and there'll be almost certainly there'll be some marks you can gain from some of the questions in the case, even if you don't know a lot of detail about the condition that's being discussed. Great. Thanks, Genevieve. Um, so now perhaps if I could throw a similar but related question to you, Gary, how should you approach a KFP case? Okay, good question. Um, thanks, Sean. And really the, the most important one is read the whole case first because as Genevieve said, you may be presented with a case where you're unsure it may be one of those rarer cases Read the case first so you can reassure yourself there are things that you can address in this case because it's really important to attempt every case. Because if you leave a case, then you are effectively automatically writing off 3.85% of your marks. As Genevieve said earlier, each case is weighted equally. So make sure you read the, the whole case rather than just being put off by the initial question that you may feel is too hard or too difficult. And then um, read the actual scenario itself through a couple of times and pick out all the important information. And every part, every bit of information in the case will be relevant. It, it's important to know that we do not put information in there to try and mislead or trick candidates. I'm interested um, in what candidates know, not what they don't know um, or trying to drop as we call red herrings into the scenario that the college isn't about tricking you um, whatsoever and once you've read that then for each question read the question carefully read it a couple of times because so often we ask for one thing and candidates then provide us with a completely different answer so it's you know the classic is asking for history uh questions that you may may wish to use to inquire further about the patient's presentation and um, people put down examination findings or if we ask for examination they put down um, history or they put down invest investigations so make sure that your answer is actually related to the question so when you've finished your answer 
look back and make sure your answer addresses the question. And then when you're reading the, the question, it, what are we asking for? Are we asking um, keywords that we may use would be specific, most likely, appropriate? Um, how would you, uh, another one would be, how would you confirm the diagnosis? Um, what would your initial management be? We will often ask for just pharmacological management, or we will ask for non-pharmacological management. Another style of question is, other than lifestyle, what pharmacological management would you take as your next step? It's amazing how many times when we ask for pharmacological, we get non-pharmacological and vice versa. So again, make sure you're addressing the question. Um, an example would be of a speak around the specific is we often get answers such as x-ray or duplex when we ask what would be your next single most important management step. And if we wrote a, if we wrote a form and sent it to our local radiology suite with just the word x-ray or duplex on it, then we would probably get a phone call from that radiology suite asking us for more information. And we would probably have a patient who's a little disgruntled because they're having to wait for us to get back in touch with the radiology suite. So likewise, in the KFP, write what you would actually do in practice. So if you're ordering a venous duplex scan of the left leg, then that's what you would write on the form. So that's what you would put into your KFP answer. Um, so be specific. If you've got a chest X-ray in front of you in the exam and it shows some consolidation, then actually say that it's in the right middle lobe consolidation. So that will gain you more marks. If you just put consolidation, you'll get a mark, but there will be more marks available for being specific. So actually putting right middle lobe consolidation will gain you the maximum marks because it's important that we're actually testing what you would do, what you would do in practice and really what you should do in practice. Um, and that's about being specific um, with both investigations, uh, being specific with your management. And if we ask for dosing regimes of medication, then do put them. You will get marks for just listing the drug, but if you've got the appropriate dosing regime there as well, you will get more marks. And we only ask for dosing regimes of commonly used medications. We're not going to be asking you for dosing regimes um, for medications that are new to market or complex um, or really at that more entering the specialized areas of general practice. Genevieve, anything else you would like to add to that? Yeah, Gary, I think first of all, just going back to your comment about pharmacological versus non-pharmacological management, there seems to be some confusion um, with candidates about things that, uh, about what call, what falls into which category, particularly around things like vitamin supplements, skin lotions, that kind of thing. Can you maybe comment for the audience about um, how to differentiate pharmacological and non-pharmacological? Well, pharmacological is anything that is pharmacological, which you would actually take. So vitamins would still be considered pharmacological and using skin lotions, emollients would still be pharmacological. And that's the stance we take because some of those lotions are 
are prescribable, but pharmacological doesn't just mean um, prescribed medications. That can include over-the-counter medications as well. Absolutely. So thanks again for the clarifying. That's something that is commonly people get a bit confused about. So that's a great clarification. I suppose the thing I wanted to add um, to your very uh, excellent description of how to approach cases is there are going to be times where you're just not sure what you what they were asking for, um, what the question is about. And people sometimes get themselves very exam focused. They're like, what does the examiner want? What are they trying to say? What are they trying to trick me up? As Gary said, we're not trying to trick you. We're trying to get your, uh, to try and understand how you would deal with a patient that's like that in front of you. So if you get yourself a bit stressed and not sure what's being asked, what I suggest is close your eyes for a second and just imagine seeing that particular patient in the context that's described. So imagine in your surgery or if it's set in a rural emergency department in that context and answer about what you sh- you would do. If that was in front of you, what would you do? Uh, think of the last patient you saw that was like this, that came in with a similar presentation. Now, assuming that you, first of all, have done a decent amount of clinical general practice and the best preparation for this exam is doing general practice and also assuming that you are practicing in a way that is consistent with current guidelines and is as a competent GP, this technique works well. So don't get too focused on this is an exam, so I'm going to write an exam answer we want to actually know what you would do and how you would treat patients. So when in doubt, think about if this was a real patient, what would you do? Thank you, Genevieve. Um, borrowing a leaf out of Murtar's diagnostic sieve in terms of common pitfalls made, Genevieve or Gary, can you please tell me what is overcoding and how can you avoid it? Okay, um, I'll start if that's okay, Genevieve. And really, Overcoding is something we get asked a lot about when we do presentations or workshops for the KFP. Overcoding is where candidates provide more answers than we ask for. And in an attempt to be fair to all candidates, the college has a process of penalties for additional answers. I think the easiest way is to to look at it is to consider a candidate who, when asked for three answers, decides to give us everything they know on that that condition, hoping that there will be three correct answers somewhere in their list of answers. And sometimes this gets called shot blasting their answers. And if my examiners, when they're coming to mark the KFP, KFP, are given a candidate's answer that has, say, eight answers to a three answer question, then what do they do? Do they just mark the first three answers? Do they mark the first answer on each line? Because we do give you if we the right number of lines for the quest the answers asked for. So if we ask for three answers, there will be three lines to put your answers on. So how do our examiners mark it? So to be consistent, what we do is we actually code every single answer. So every single answer over the three requested for in this example will attract a penalty. And that penalty is currently 0.25% of a mark. 
And the reason it is at 0.25% of a mark is because that is effectively what one mark is worth on average across the whole paper when all the weighting and all the percentages are taken into account. So that 0.25% comes off your final score, not within the question, but your final score. And that's to actually um, prevent those candidates who are trying to list every single answer possible from benefiting. And also remember, as we said earlier, the key feature paper, sorry, key feature problem paper is about being specific in the context of the patient, not trying to give us an all-cause list or giving us every bit of knowledge you possibly know on something and dumping it into the exam paper. So it's actually about being fair to all candidates. Um, and so that's the reason the college has taken this stance. But it is really important to remember this is not negative marking. You do not lose marks for wrong answers in any part of the college exams, not in the AKT or in the KFP. Um, so it's a penalty for providing too many answers. And I think, Genevieve, you can talk, uh, you'll talk about how you can avoid overcoding. Yeah, so uh, there is some really good examples of how this overcoding works in the exam support online modules that were written by Gary and his team. Uh, so you can see some examples of how that actually works. And one thing I just want to emphasize is although there's a lot of attention being on overcoding, the actual numbers of overcodes that candidates have done has reduced dramatically over the last few years, haven't they, Gary? Yes, they have, Genevieve. When I started taking the reins of the KFP five years ago, um, the overcoding um, was at a huge rate. We're now at less than 10% of what the overcoding rate was when we first took over. And that's because we have, uh, because people are so worried about it and because we have talked about how to avoid it. So, however, there are still some people who do overcode and some people overcode a lot. So, how to avoid it? The main thing, as Gary alluded to, is you need to give the correct number of answers and preferably on separate lines. We give you the right number of lines for have one answer per line. So, please use that. Another bit of a hint, if you are using commas, if you're making a list or using words like because, if or and, then you may be overcoding. Now, it's not that those words themselves are penalties for overcoding. It's just it's the number of responses you have either side of those words or punctuation marks. So just eliminating those conjunctions those doesn't mean you're not overcoding. But if you are using any kind of punctuation, dashes, slashes, commas, those kind of things, just look at your answer and ask yourself, is this one concept or two? If it's two, get rid of one of them. The other thing to remember is use note form. Make every word count. Don't give us unnecessary words. Writing a general statement and giving an example is unnecessary. So let's say, for example, you were asked about someone that had abdominal pain uh, and you thought that one of the differentials was an inflammatory bowel disease. And you said, I'm not really sure uh, which one it is. So I'll just say inflammatory bowel disease, e.g. Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. 
there you have two examples that is overcoding. However, it's even if you're not sure whether it's UC or Crohn's, just put one of them. Just say, well, it could be one of those. I'll just put the example down. So you don't need to write inflammatory bowel disease and then say EG Crohn's. Just give us the Crohn's. The risk of giving us a statement or a category and then giving it an example is if you get the category and example wrong, it will be marked as overcoding. So, for example, if you said inflammatory bowel disease, uh, e.g. celiac disease, then that would consider two different um, marks, two different answers, and you will lose marks by the overcoding penalties. So, inflammatory bowel disease, although celiac disease does involve inflammatory inflammation of the bowel, it's not considered one of the inflammatory bowel diseases as such. So my suggestion is that give thinking categories. So think about, okay, this might be an inflammatory bowel disease, but answer giving a single example and the most relevant example that you can think of. And look, it may be that celiac disease is a good answer, but just put it by itself. It may be that Crohn's disease is a good answer. Just put it by itself. Does that make sense to you, Gary? Totally, Genevieve. And I think the important thing is if we want examples, we will ask for them um, as well because it's it's a common common error is putting examples and then giving us wrong examples. Um, and as you say, that will lead to extra, extra effectively extra answers. A very mm. common one is, is, is uh, medications. So people will put something like, Laba, and then write e.g. salbutamol. Um, very commonly, people will give us the class of medication and then the wrong example. Uh, so, best to just give that just give that specific example as your answer. This is really good information, guys. I can see why, unless you had an explanation like this, the candidates would be uh, confused about it. And I think you've explained it really, really well. So what are the, some of the other common errors in the KFP, uh, say, Genevieve? So, Sean, I think we've alluded to quite a few of them already, but just to summarise them as some of the key things that people do poorly at. The KFP, as we've said several times, is about having good clinical reasoning skills. So if you don't have those clinical reasoning skills or you're not able to show us your clinical reasoning skills in the exam, you will do poorly in this. And by and by far and away, when you're looking at those that have failed exams, particularly if they've failed more than once, it's not usually about overcoding or about running out of time. It's usually either not reading the question, not answering the question contextually, or having poor clinical reasoning skills, or the lack of knowledge about specific uh, or specific areas of medicine. Those are by far the most common reasons people fail exam. But if we look, if we go to the actual technique problems. The overcoding can be a problem in some, but luckily, uh, well, not just luckily, but it has decreased a lot over time. Uh, being not specific enough in your answers uh, is really the, a really common reason that people do poorly. So they'll give us broad, vague answers without actually giving uh, specific answers. So for example, they will give an answer of something like simple analgesia. That's a general answer. Well, we're looking for something like uh, paracetamol orally 
one gram four times a day as required. So that that's the answer of a specific answer as opposed to a broad answer like analgesia. analgesia. The other things, uh, as Gary said, when you're looking at approaching the case, it's very important that you appreciate all of the information that's given you to you in the STEM. It is all going to be uh, consistent with your answer. You, it's, we're not just putting it in red herrings. You need to make sure you appreciate all of that. The next thing is that Gary also alluded to uh, was about not interpreting the question properly. And I'll just use an example from the most recent exam to illustrate that. So there was a case in the exam of a uh, middle-aged woman who had fatigue and sore joints and was feeling generally unwell. And the question asked about what specific physical examination find, findings would you look for? Now, when you're asking for the findings, you're asking for the abnormalities you're looking for, the things that you are looking that might give you a clue about what your differential diagnosis is going to be. So you ask that the question is looking at the things like fever, rash, lymph node enlargement, enlarged liver, that kind of thing. It's not looking for, I would measure the temperature, uh, I would examine the, the abdomen, I would examine lymph nodes. It's not asking you what you would do. It's asking you what the abnormalities are that you are looking for. So when you're looking at examination questions, most of them will be about that, about what you are looking for. We're not just going to ask you how you're actually going to conduct an examination, but you need to read the question carefully and ask and answer what they are actually asking. Another uh, problem that people have is uh, in their preparation for the for the KFP, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But essentially, studying textbooks instead of separating studying patients. Now, it's not saying that you shouldn't study textbooks; they are very important. But divorcing your study of exams from what you do every day in practice is a grave mistake when we're looking at the, the AKT, KFP and OSCE exams. This is about general practice, Australian general practice. So if you're doing good quality Australian general practice, that's there your preparation. So to read around your patients, to look up guidelines when you're unsure of what the uh, of what the best management is of this particular patient, all of these are very important. Now, this was talked at length uh, in the AKT feedback podcast, so we're not going to reiterate then. There, if you are people are wanting to get that information, uh, you'll be able to access that other that other podcast. Uh, but essentially, uh, that is one of the common errors that people are thinking about study as different from the kind of day-to-day -day practice they do in real life. Uh, and the final two things I wanted to mention, uh, not knowing or not recognizing normal. So people have this assumption that if it's an exam, it must be abnormal. There must be something wrong. Take, for example, a chest X-ray. You may have a chest X-ray in the exam, which is perfectly normal. You need to not then go and look for what the abnormalities are, whether that be a chest X-ray or an ECG or the clinical presentation of a child that, uh, for example, uh, that may have knocked knees or something like that and just think, oh, it must be abnormal because it's an exam. 
there may well be normal things in the exam. And that's because a lot of people that come to see us in general practice have normal findings, have normal test results. And being able to identify what is normal and what is not normal is a really key skill in general practice. Hence, we want to also test that in our KFP and our AKT and OSCE. And the final point I wanted to make was about performance anxiety. We'll mention this a little bit later in the podcast, but essentially when people are in a uh, level of stress, which is dysfunctional, so a little bit of stress makes us perform well, but once you uh, get too much stress, you'll tip over with the performance uh, stress curve and you'll end up not performing well not being able to show us that knowledge that you have. So that is also an issue for some candidates. Gary, what are your thoughts on this? I think actually, Genevieve, you've you've covered it fantastically. I don't think really there's much else to add um, into that. It's, it's about making sure, um, as, as you say, you're prepared um, and that your patients are the key um, and the launch pad for your, um, your revision and your exam preparation. Yeah, uh, look, I think absolutely. The the other thing, and, and as you mentioned, Genevieve, this was covered previously in the last podcast, uh, but I think going into an exam period, it is one of the most stressful times in your professional career. And I think it's worth being proactive about these things and, and making sure you've got a good GP yourself um, that you're in touch with and that you can touch base with if, if things are getting a bit rough. But as you say, we'll talk about that a bit later in the podcast. So, um, Gary, who marks the exam and how is the pass mark calculated? Um, thanks, Sean. The, first of all, the marking is undertaken by uh, GPs from across the country um, that represent the, the full breadth of general practice. They, When we get our examiners, um, they're trained. Um, they are all quality assured and by that I mean when they are marking we actually quality assure their marking to make sure they're being consistent with the marking grids uh, so that no candidate is penalized. We also make sure that every marker gets the exam questions in a completely different order. So if your surname is at the end of the alphabet you're not the one that's always being marked towards the end of the marking. Uh, so again, trying to make sure there's no examiner fatigue. And I can actually honestly say that we have never had to remove a marker. We are constantly quality assured from the beginning through to the end um, of the marking. And we can genuinely say that the marks that the candidate has got is the marks that the candidate um, is truly uh, has truly achieved within each of the questions. And that leads on to the standard setting um, and how we calculate the pass mark. It's impossible to make sure that you have an exam which is consistently of the same difficulty. And the way the college sets its pass mark is by a process called the modified Angoff. And in this process, um, you can read about this online um, within medical ed- educational journals, but it's simply each each question is discussed by a group of 
20 GPs, again, selected across all the states and territories and from all stages of uh, GP life. And they discuss each question and effectively set the difficulty level for that question. And the actual pass mark is the accumulation of those measures of difficulty or difficulty indices, if you want to call it those. And that's why if we have a difficult question, like a, a, a question candidates find difficult, and the standard setters also agree <clears throat> that that's a diff, difficult question, then they will set a lower pass mark for that question. So each question is given its own pass mark and it's the accumulation of those pass marks as in difficulty indexes that actually go towards calculating the final score and final pass mark and that's why you will see in all the public reports that the pass mark um, for exam does vary from cycle to cycle but it is within a very tight range um, so we make sure that, again, we're trying to be fair to the candidates. And if one exam is considered to be harder, then the pass mark will be reduced. I hope that answers your question, Sean. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing how much science goes into these sorts of things. I'm always amazed. You sort of look from the outside and go, oh, yeah, they probably stick their finger in the air and uh, lick, lick their finger, stick it in the air and, and work out roughly what's a pass mark. But obviously, there's a huge amount more that goes into it than that. We had a question submitted earlier about why the pass rate is lower for those with more than one attempt. The questioner writes, I'm interested why the success rate of passing the KFP exam is declining with each unsuccessful attempt. Logically, one score should improve by further studies, clinical experience and learning from one's previous mistakes. Genevieve, did you have any comments on that? Thanks, Sean. That's a, it's a very interesting misconception that people have about the interpretation of pass rates. In the last few years, we've been publishing the pass rates of each of the KFP exams and the other exams as well via the public exam reports. And in these reports, we publish the rates of passing for those that are sitting the exam for the first time, second time, third time, and more than three times. So in 2019.1 KFP, the pass rates were 72.9% for those that were sitting for the first time, 54.4% for those in the second time, and 38.8% for those sitting the third time. Now, on the surface, people look at that and they say, oh, that means that each time I sit the exam, my chance of passing goes down, and that doesn't make sense. Why is that the case? And there are even sometimes rumors saying that you mark people that are resitting harder, you mark them separately, or you penalize them in some way, which is totally untrue. As uh, Gary just talked about, we mark in a very de-identified, randomized way. So we have no idea about who is a sitter, resitter, or many times resitter. So I just want to explain a little bit mathematically about why this is the case. Uh, before I do, I just do want to acknowledge that there are some people, inter there are some individuals whose pass mark, whose whose uh, pass mark, or their sorry, so their mark does go down 
uh, with subsequent attempts. And that is mostly to do with performance anxiety. So for those that were fairly relaxed when they first sat, but then after a failure or two, they get very stressed and they perform poorly in the exam. But that's not the majority. Most people actually do get better when they put in extra work, extra study and resit the exam. So let me explain it this way. If you're looking at those that sit the first time, 72.9% of those pass. Now for those, they never sit a second time. They just exit the cohort. If you're looking at the people that have sat for the second time, that cohort, what was their pass mark in the, the first time round? Their, their pass, their pass, sorry, their pass rate. The pass rate of the second time sitters in the first time was zero. They all had failed, therefore they were all a zero percent pass rate of that cohort. For that cohort, their pass rate is now 54.4%. Let's look at the third sitting cohort. So for that particular cohort, those doctors in that group, their pass rate sitting their exam the first time was 0%. Their pass rate sitting the exam a second time was 0%. Their pass rate for those sitting that same doctors sitting the third time is 38.8%. So as you can see, it's a cohort effect that the reason the pass rate goes down. It's not an individual effect. The individual doctors within that group, if they put in the work, if you further have further study, if you put, you have a very good chance of passing if you put in the work like anyone else. So hopefully that's um, – does that make sense to you, Sean and Gary, the way I've explained it there? I'm – very happy with that, Genevieve. It's it's it is as you say, um, often misinterpreted. But each cohort, it, you have to look at each cohort individually. Um, and as you say, as you get your second, third attempts onwards, the pass rate for that cohort for prior exams was naught percent. So no, you've explained it really well. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, I agree, Genevieve. I think you know it's very clear to to me anyway. I mean, if you started out in the first cohort, you got zero percent uh, passing pass rate. You then look at the second cohort, and glass half full, more than half of them have done significantly better than they did the first time around. Um, and then looking at the third time, thirty eight percent of them have done better than they did in the first or second time around. Um, so people are improving each time, but the overall rate is lower, as you say, because of that cohort effect. So if we had some other submitted questions uh, that were more around the support the college offers for exam preparation, particularly in relation to rural candidates who can't easily attend events in capital cities and the purpose usefulness of the public report. Gary, did you have some comments on that? Um, yes. Thank you, Sean. There the college is um, very aware that given the dispersed nature of general practice, um, that we need to ensure e equity of access to exam preparation materials um, for all our candidates. And the, the public report is part of that, but that actually is a very small part of the uh, resources that the college provides. If we we start with the exam support online or the ESO modules, which are based in GP learning. Um, we created these modules to support candidates as a form of introduction to the KFP, um, as well as the AKT and the OSCE to allow candidates to work through 
recent cases um, of real college exam questions and understand the process. And as Genevieve said, there's explanations in there about overcoding within the KFP. Now, the ESOs are all free and available to all members. So they're also there um, for supervisors and mentors of um, candidates and prospective candidates um, so that they can also access those um, to work potentially through them even together. That's a, a really good way some people have found support. We then have the webinars. There's webinars that are uh, three-session webinars that have been completely redesigned and rewritten um, by myself and the team, and they're delivered by several of the RACGP faculties, and their availability is on the college website. And these are three modules uh, running on the set at the same time over three weeks. And again, they compose of approximately 12 uh, real cases from recent KFPs and candidates work through them question by question and they get their they see the answers to those and there's a discussion around the common pitfalls that candidates fell into and also what are um, appropriate answers so there's one thing that is completely um uh, untied to where you're based because you don't need to be in a capital city to be able to access those. The other support is the practice exam, which is available once uh, you enroll for your exam. And the practice exam is again based on thir is 13 cases taken from recent exams. It's done in the online platform um, that you will actually sit the exam in and it's also timed at half the time you would have for the real exam because there's 13 cases so it's a it's this it's a way of becoming familiar with the platform but also learning to pace yourself um, and once you've finished your practice exam you will then get your answers sent to you in a as a pdf uh, via email and along with your answers are explanatory notes and the correct answers. So you can self-mark your own KFP. We also do run the faculty face-to-face -face workshops for the KFP. These are also um, just been completely revised and they contain another 13 um, cases taken from recent exams as well. We feel that by using recent exams questions, um, we're able to give candidates the best form of support because whenever we give these questions through webinars, face-to-face -face, or in the practice exam, they come with examples and rationales and also cover some of the pitfalls that candidates commonly do. Other resources would be the Australian Journal of General Practice, um, the guidelines on the RACGP website um, and other guidelines from the major um, teaching hospitals such as the Royal Children's Hospital, the Royal Women's Hospital. Um, there's also essentially is the, th essentially is the therapeutic guidelines, um, the Australian Medicine Handbook. Um, so they're, they're key documents and key guidelines that you will see. Dermatology, which is often poorly done within the exam, uh, uh, Dermnet is often a very good resource. Um, and ECGs, um, Life in the Fast Lane has a free CG library, um, which is also a great resource. 
Thanks, Gary. Just to reiterate that there is a whole ESO module looking at how to prepare in which there's many resources listed. And in our new exam preparation page on the RACGP website, we are in the process of collating resources that are going to be useful. Fantastic. Yeah, because it's often very difficult on a podcast to note all of this stuff down. So if you're going to take one thing or two things away, that's probably it. The ESO and the the college website for exam preparation. So what other services can candidates have to support them through the exam preparation process? Genevieve? So I think this question really is about how to keep ourselves well. We've talked a couple of times already during this podcast about how stressful sitting and resitting exams can be. It is so important, as Sean mentioned earlier, to have your own GP to make sure that your physical and mental health is well looked after. Also, please look after the health of your colleagues. Look out for your colleagues. People in your study group, if you see them that are in a way that you feel that they are struggling, please ask them, are they okay? Provide support. Because we have to look, this This is, I can't overestimate or can't over uh, emphasize how important it is to be in a good physical and mental mind space, even just to be able to sit through three and a half or four hours, depending on the AKT or KFP exam, and to be able to focus throughout that time. So performance anxiety can adversely affect both your preparation and your exam performance. And if you find that this is uh, affecting you, highly recommend seeing a psychologist, um, either through your, uh, your GP or through the RAC GP GP support program, and that's free confidential counselling by psychologists for RAC GP members. There are also Doctors Health Advisory Service uh, and other services available, such as things like e-mental health websites, uh, things like This Way Up, MindSpot, mindfulness training, those kind of things, which are very helpful for us to know about, to recommend to our patients, but they also can be of great benefit to us. So that's really what I want to just emphasize. Please do look after yourself and your colleagues, um, trying to work and study and trying to run families, etc. Um, it, it can be a very heavy load. So it is important that you don't neglect yourself in that in that uh, in that load yeah look I would totally agree with that and if I could just emphasize one in particular that you meant mentioned and that's the doctor's health advisory service we did a, a podcast on the good GP um, with uh, dr. David Oldham from the doctor's health advisory service and they do some amazing work I mean we all know that uh, there's a variable quality um, of every service professional out there, GPs included. Um, but the Doctors' Health Advisory Service can put you in touch with a good quality GP who's comfortable seeing other medical practitioners and who has got excellent clinical skills. Um, their phone number is different in each state. It's available uh, on, on the internet. So please, if you don't already have a GP that's not somebody that you know, then please ring the Doctors' Health Advisory Service and, and get one. Okay, um, Genevieve, have you got any final tips for our candidates? Well, I made up a little mnemonic, Sean, uh, that is pass exam to help us think about how to best approach the KFP. So it goes like this. 
P stands for prioritize. So be selective and have a systematic approach for you to answer your questions. Be selective with what you put in to your answers. A stands for ambiguity, to avoid it. So avoid any um, ambiguity in your answers. If you've got an ambiguous answer, make sure you change it so it's clear about what you mean. S is specific. So uh, as we've said before, be specific in your answers. The second S stands for seven minutes per case on first run through, which was uh, a little thing I talked about earlier with timing. The E stands for examples are not required unless you unless asked for. The X stands for explanations are not required unless asked for. The A stands for answer contextually, so make sure your answers are related to the actual STEM, the actual patient that's being described. And M is minimize unnecessary words, so make every word count. Not something I'm particularly good at, but very good for the KFP. And the final things is that, uh, is that look, technique is important, knowledge is more important, but the application of the knowledge is what's most important for the KFP. I okay. think I'll leave it there. Look, all excellent tips. And, um, yeah, I'm sure our candidates will be able to take away huge a number of pearls of wisdom from that. How about you, Gary? Any tips? Well, I suppose um, back to the beach, really. Um, back to the beach data, um, partly because we can see the common things that we see in general practice and to make sure you're solid on those. But also the, the beauty of the beach data is that you can use it as a mirror to hold up to our own practice and see where our potential def deficiencies are in the patient groups that we see and the types of illnesses that we see and to make sure that we actually review those areas um, and ensure we have uh, considered those because it's quite common to identify deficiencies in um, those candidates who have not been successful because they haven't considered the full breadth of general practice, but really spend a lot of time in one particular area. So um, my tip, back to the beach. Excellent. Sounds like a great, great tip. Maybe not until next summer though, Gary. It's a bit cool here today. Don't know about you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Genevieve and Gary, for a very informative podcast. And to all of the candidates out there, best of luck. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure. 